The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We are doing a Guy's Take episode today. Sorry I didn't get this one out yesterday, and I know I said I was going to have five episodes for this week, but I will say, even though I didn't get one out on Wednesday, I still have the opportunity to get five out this week. I didn't say every day. so. Just so, just so anybody who's trying to call me out on that, my brother, <coughs> um, know that the week is not over yet. Shut your mouth. But this episode is going to be digging into, it, it'll partially be a response. It'll be the guy's take that Bitcoin's, or excuse me, uh, Dirgigi's Bitcoin is digital scarcity deserved, but that I did not have the time to do. But more importantly, I think this will be, I'll be taking his idea that he lays out in that piece and kind of extending it because the idea of digital money, I loved his framing between the, the concepts of artificial money and digital money, the clarification between those two concepts and why Bitcoin is the first digital money. For those of you who have not listened to his article yet, um, it is read 650, and I will have it in the show notes, so it is right there if you want to get, um, get your prerequisites out of the way. If not, it won't be that big of a deal. I'll be kind of covering the idea anyway. But you should definitely go back and listen to it and or read it because it's a phenomenal piece. But something else I wanted to address in this episode is that I've come across this, I don't I find that I'm still kind of isolated in my social circles, um, particularly on social media, and I don't often interact with the normie mindset, so to speak. And when I do, I, I realize just how often some of the really simple fallacies are actually extremely prevalent still. And one of those is, what is Bitcoin backed by? And I wanted to hit that idea again because it's been a while since I've really covered it on the show. And I think this is something that's deeply tied to the idea of, or the ideas, or the difference between digital money and artificial money, which is what I think that statement is based off of. It's the idea that I see all of these other artificial monies and they have to be backed by something. Therefore, here is this new artificial money called Bitcoin. What is it backed by? So I think those concepts are very closely tied to each other, which is why I want to hit them at the same time. But I, I do want to hit that because it seems to be a huge barrier to most people coming in or, or looking at Bitcoin from the outside. So I'm going to try to hit that idea again. Uh, really quick, I just want to thank our amazing sponsors for supporting this show. As you know, I am a massive fan of the Fold card and the Fold app. Um, I buy regular, regularly buy gift cards that get me sats back um, on you know normal stuff that I purchase, and I'm I, the fold debit card is my main driver. It's the only card that I use unless I have a situation where I just cannot use it, and I will go through some serious hoops to make sure that I can use it. 
It is the debit card. It is the sats back card. It gets you sats on everything in your life from a base 1% that you can choose or you can choose to spin the wheel that will literally get you up to 100% back. And I have actually rolled that once. I have spun that once on my plane ticket to Mexico for the Bitcoin Standard Conference. True story. It was seriously epic. And you guys can get 5,000 sats for free just for signing up, not getting the premium card. Nope, just go to the app and they literally have a faucet, a spin that you get free sats every single day. Go to guyswan.com slash fold. It's right in the show notes. So it's going to be so easy to find. And the other people you're going to find in there are Swan Bitcoin. The Bitcoin only service, onboarding, learning, like the education. They have got incredible support. Their team is always responsive and they are there to answer questions. And they are hosting a Pacific Bitcoin conference, a Bitcoin only conference in LA at the beginning of November. Do not miss it. And do not forget 20% off with code GUYS. When you go over to Swan Bitcoin as well, don't forget to set up your automatic savings plan. It's going to automatically withdraw to your cold card. And that is our third sponsor, CoinKite, the makers of so many amazing Bitcoin hardware and security products. These guys have been around for a long time, since like I think it was 2010 or 2011, I can't remember, is block height 141,000. Makers of the cold card, the tap signer, the block clock mini and micro, you name it. And you guys get 5% off with code Bitcoin Audible. Guess where you're going to find links for all this great stuff? In the show notes. All right. So the first thing I want to address in this is what is the money backed by? What is Bitcoin backed by? And the simple answer to it is that only virtual money. Only artificial money has to be backed by something. Real money isn't backed by anything. It's backed by the fact that it's good money. Gold isn't backed by anything. This is where, where gold bugs honestly seem to miss the importance or the lesson, so to speak, that gold is trying to teach when it comes to money. Gold is not at all backed by what you can do with it for non-monetary purposes. The fact that you can do other things with it simply gave it any sort of a market, a market value for any other reason that then established its place in the market that allowed it to naturally develop into a money because of its monetary characteristics. This is why gold has something, and numerous other goods actually, have something referred to as a monetary premium that it has a set of characteristics that allow it to establish a price above its utility value, above its value for some alternative purpose, and it maintains that value. And the reason it maintains that value is because you cannot alter the amount of supply that exists in the market fast enough to degrade that value premium. So think of anything else in the market, TVs, um, cars, uh, you know, computers, like whatever it is. If its value went too far outside of the bounds of its costs, like if it costs $1,000 to make a computer and they're selling it for $1,200, that's a, that's a decent margin, right? But if it costs $1,000 to make a computer and suddenly for some reason computers shoot up to $5,000, $6,000, $10,000, 
that cost $1,000 to make. What is going to happen to the supply of computers? They're going to skyrocket. Everybody and their first cousin who even slightly knows how to make computers is going to get into the business and the supply, the new supply of computers on the market is going to skyrocket until that $10,000 price plummets all the way back down to a sensible profit margin and people are no longer enticed to make computers if they didn't really want to make computers. However, there are some goods that are scarce enough and have a set of characteristics that are critical enough that when that monetary premium develops, when that seeming outside-of-the-market price develops, you can't change the supply. That even if you start driving up the cost to 2000 to 3000 to $9,000, that's how much you spend trying to get more of it, you still can't get enough to drop the price, drop the $10,000 price. And what happens is the demand for that item becomes solely because it can maintain its value, because it is scarce, because it is durable, it doesn't rot, it doesn't degrade over time, because you can break it up and you can, you know, maybe you want to store $10,000 for the future in it, but maybe you only want to access $1,000 of it. You can't really do that with like a fancy watch. You can't do that with a car. I can't like, I can't like chop off a piece of my car and sell it later. There are other goods that I might think of that, could, that I could sell later, but it would be a whole lot better if I could break it up into small pieces because my goal is to get other items, but all of those other items rot. All of those other items have maintenance costs. All of those items can explode in supply if their value ever goes up. None of them can sustain a premium purely for the sake of holding the value across time unless it is incredibly scarce, and it has a, and a handful of other very critical characteristics that make it a good money. Understand, the utility of money is an unbelievably huge utility. Not only is it, is a, is it a huge utility on the individual level, it's one of the most important utilities in the development and sustainability of a society. The, the idea that money has to be backed by some other arbitrary thing that it does is ridiculous because being a good money is one of the hardest things in all of economic society to accomplish. It's an insanely difficult task. That's why there are so few things that actually manage to pull it off. And even, even those things that do sort of kind of pull it off have huge trade-offs. They have drawbacks. Gold is heavy. Gold is hard to move around. Gold is heavily centralizing because of this characteristic and because it doesn't work in the digital age. Gold was a great money, was a phenomenal money 500 years ago when the economy stopped at hand-to-hand -hand exchange. But when that started to change, Gold stopped serving its purpose. Gold was no longer individually verifiable. Gold was no longer sound money in the fact that you knew that what you were trading was not some other person's liability. That's one of the issues with credit. That, that's actually what money did, is it, it extended society past what credit was able to accomplish. Because when you have a credit system, when you have a liability system, it means that you have to trust the other person whose liability it is. 
there is a counterparty involved. If Bob owes me something, I have to know how to get in touch with Bob. I have to believe that Bob is going to pay me back. If I am using a third party between me and Bob who is going to guarantee this, well, then I have to trust that institution. It is specifically something that is a trusted relationship. There is a counterparty risk and the potential for a third party, someone not myself, to fail in the agreement such that I never get my value back. That is why money develops in a society in the first place. Because the good that is it's the value in and of itself, it doesn't need a proxy. It doesn't need someone else's liability. It doesn't need me to trust someone because the good, the value of the thing replaces that and its characteristics to be scarce, to maintain itself over time, to have incredibly low cost to keep it for long periods of time, whether I want to use it tomorrow to get its value back or I want to use it in 10 years to get its value back. The good that accomplishes that is able to extend society's planning further into the future. It allows us to have a static measure of everything that is happening uh, from the context of value in the economy, and it allows us to extend its use. This is why money is so directly tied to time preference, to our ability as human beings, as individuals, to think further out into the future and to plan for the future. And such a great example of how absurd and how unbelievably short-term focused and high time preference our society is today is to watch them discuss the value of Bitcoin or discuss the value of the dollar. Imagine, just think of a hypothetical. Think about this as what these two goods are. Imagine you're looking at two different goods on the market and you are considering which one you would like to hold. One has a literal unlimited supply. It is run by a set of institutions that either lies constantly or is deeply incompetent and everything they say ends up being the opposite of what actually happens. These institutions can literally create an unlimited amount of it for free. It costs them absolutely nothing to produce more of it, and they take those free tokens that they get, and they sell it to you for thousands of hours of your hard work of stuff for stuff that you make for services that you provide. Its value is guaranteed to go down every single year as a, consequ a consequence of this, and there is no medium or long-term time frame in which it has sustainably gained value. It is being censored by the institutions that control it left and right. People are actually having it confiscated for their opinions on social media. It is highly censored. Its quote-unquote future innovations involve talking about how there's going to be a new version of it where there's complete and total surveillance of everyone's transactions and who they do business with and the micro-ability to steal or freeze their funds for not making life decisions that rich, self-righteous politicians claim they should make, demand that they should make. And this good is currently in the midst of the most aggressive increase in its supply and the most aggressive loss of its value in something like 50 years. And it is supposedly backed by the 
faith and credit, quote unquote, of an institution that holds more debt than any other institution on planet Earth. Then there is another good in this market that does not change in supply. It is the only good in the market that does not change in supply. No one, not even these same giant, powerful political institutions, can make more of it for free, can make any of it for free. In fact, everyone gets the exact same cost to make it. And the more people who try to make more of it, the harder it gets to make, ensuring that its supply schedule is actually perfectly predictable. You can know what it is tomorrow. You can know what it is next week. You know what it is next year. You know what it is 10 years from now. It has undergone numerous, rather fantastic increases in value over its lifetime and numerous corrections, but so far every single time it has found a higher floor, a substantially higher floor at that, its long-term value has done nothing but go up. It is nobody's liability. When you are holding it, you are holding the actual value and the actual good, not someone's promise to pay it back. There is no institution behind it with any debt at all. Nobody can freeze your account. No one can confiscate your funds without your keys. No one can censor your transactions. And the infrastructure sustaining it is totally separate from the global financial system, while that financial system is in the midst of the worst debt crisis, quite possibly all in all of human history. And this good is backed by the simple fact that none of these characteristics will change. These same assurances and guarantees have proven resilient and consistent against multiple attacks and multiple attempts to stop it and to change it for 13 years, for its entire lifespan. Imagine selling the second one to get more of the first one because you looked at a price chart of what happened over the last few months. I cannot imagine a more short-term, shallow thinking about the issue at hand. Now, the only case to be made is that the former, the crappier, the horrible, horrible monetary good has a huge network and has been around longer. But both of those things are temporary problems that are directly tied to the fact that Bitcoin is young. Obviously, Bitcoin is our latter good in this market. Money is backed by the fact that it is good money. The Yap Rise Stones, I'm, everybody who's listened to this show for any amount of time knows the Yap, uh, the islands of Yap and the Rise Stones that they used as money for, I think it was like five centuries. But for simplicity's sake, they were giant rocks that you literally couldn't do anything else with. They were, they were carved disks of limestone that were used as monetary goods because they were simply incredibly difficult to make. And after they developed a notoriety, a social value among the community, among the islands of Yap, they became a sustainable money that lasted for, like I said, centuries, for longer than the dollar has been around. Which, mind you, has undergone kind of like arguably five, maybe six or so huge shifts in the dollar's history. The dollar is not the same dollar that it has been. It's had to fully restructure in order to save itself. Yap stones were yap stones until technology made it easy enough to make more of them that it simply lost its scarcity characteristic. And this is true of so many monetary goods throughout history. 
and every single thing that developed a monetary premium had some other generic market or utility or collectible value, some other reason that it developed some degree of value on the market. But that ultimate market ended up being dwarfed by the fact that it made a great money and it was able to sustain the value of money over a long period of time. The problem often was is that it only did this for certain communities or for certain civilizations that had a limited degree of technology. And when they encountered a new society or a new civilization that had technology that could mass produce or more quickly create this item that they used for money, great example is the glass beads across the African coast, which literally led to the explosiveness of the African slave trade because the English could easily reproduce the glass beads that they used for currency, which was very difficult to create with the technology on the coast of Africa, but was very easy to create for English technology. So for one society, it was great sound money. For the other society, it was incredibly easy to increase the supply. And when these societies clashed, well, what happened? The English just made a bunch of counterfeit money, made a bunch of, well, counterfeit. They weren't counterfeit beads because they had the same beads. It's simply they had the technology to create these beads, and they, they failed to be good money in the light of new technology. And thus, the English basically sucked massive amounts of value out of the African coast because they uh, unknowingly were, ex were now using a cheap, easy-to-create money, and all of their value, it was basically the Cantillionaire effect. All of the value was going to the money producers rather than the producers of goods in the market. That is what we are experiencing now. The everyday lower and middle class citizen is the, is the, is the African citizen using glass beads. And the financial system and the political elite are the English who can produce not just produce a bunch of them cheaply, produce trillions of them for free at the push of a button, and they are sucking extraordinary amounts of value out of our economy, out of our savings, out of our retirements, out of the whole world. There is a massive cantillionaire effect that is pushing everything into the financial system because the financial system is literally the spigot. You know, you, you could argue that the financial system is close to the spigot of money, but really it is the spigot. They, they are the apparatus by which the new money is issued into society and created and uh, distributed. So all of the wealthy get it, all of the big institutions get it for the sake of being big. And we have a massive parasite that is just eating the world and making ridiculously incompetent and corrupt people extraordinarily wealthy because we are working for tokens that they get for free. We are the fools being fooled by a terrible system. What we should be doing is looking at the characteristics of these goods. It is. It is a good on the market. Regardless of whether or not the government forces you to pay for it, they cannot alter reality. We should be looking at these things as monetary goods and judging them per monetary characteristics. The dollar, albeit 
because of its vast network and the vast degree of reliance on the institution that runs it, it is still the best of a pile of giant corrupt garbage. The dollar is the strongest of fiat currencies, but it is still just king of the pile of trash. And they are all virtual. They are either backed by the credit, the quote-unquote credit of these institutions, which is just their promise that they're going to steal from you, or they are backed by some real monetary good. And that's what Gigi gets into in his piece, that Bitcoin is digital scarcity. My favorite quotes from that piece was, quote, The difference between the Linden dollar, World of Warcraft gold, Fortnite V-Bucks, the euro, and the U.S. dollar is in scale, not in nature. While V-Bucks are created and controlled by, the, by Epic Games, the company that created Fortnite, the U.S. dollar is created and controlled by the Fed. One impacts millions of people, the other billions. The mechanism that keeps these monies in check, the rules of the game, if you will, is the same in both cases. Central decree. These things are virtual monies. They are impersonations of monetary goods that actually don't have any monetary characteristics. They simply create a fake environment in which the institution that controls them pretends it has these monetary characteristics. But they inevitably corrupt them, censor them, or print them. In fact, it's usually all three. Every fiat currency ultimately finds its true price. The price that it costs to make. Zero. It is no coincidence that of uh, 53, I can't remember the paper, but there was a research paper that went through the history of currencies and the history of hyperinflationary events, and there were 53 hyperinflationary events and uh, throughout history, and 52 of them had happened essentially within the last century. The average age of a fiat currency is something like 23 years because they are virtual, and ultimately, there is no greater power than the ability to take an unlimited amount of resources and give nothing in exchange, have to do nothing for it. You know, everything in our economy today, the economy in, in modern society, trade and economic activity is the means to all of our ends. We cannot do, accomplish, or dream anything without the act of trade and without engaging in economic activity. We are a society, and everything that we accomplish is through cooperation with other people. Money is our means to do that with people we do not know and do not trust. The ability to manipulate the money, the ability to print money for free, is the ability to steal everything and contribute nothing back to society. In a world where everything you do is through someone else's resources, that you trade for them, the ability to cheat that is a godlike power. No system that is easy to cheat by the people who run it will ever, ever stay uncorrupted. Bitcoin, on the other hand, 
is a digital money. And this is the framing that I really love. You know, Gigi talks about how there's the arena and then there's the item itself. And then there's the, the, the object. And in the case of going back to gold, gold was the object. The element of gold was the item. And the arena was the universe. It was dictated by physical laws. That's what made it decentralized. That's what made it independent of any central institution, is that the universe would tell you whether or not this is gold, regardless of what some politician or someone in some distant land said, and it's no, no one else's liability, right? Nobody, nobody can, like, make a mistake and then gold suddenly isn't gold. The arena is reality. It's the universe. Whereas something like the Linden Dollars, the, the item is, the, the object is uh, the Linden Dollar itself, which is just a digital representation. It's just a point in a game, and the arena is the game. It doesn't exist outside of the game. And the, the Linden Dollar, the company, Epic, I think it's Epic Games, he said, is in control of both the token and the arena. And in doing so... It's entirely virtual. The arena is fake, and the item itself is fake. And Gigi's analogy that I really liked in that piece was that, you know, if you have an analog radio, and then you make a digital radio, the digital radio is still a radio. It's just a digital version of it. But it's not a fake radio. It's a radio, just like the other, it just creates its environment, it, it creates its service, its utility through a different environment, through a different technology. Whereas a virtual radio, like something in a video game, is completely controlled by the owner of the video game, the, the maker of the video game, and it's the impersonation of a radio. You know, the radio in the GTA car isn't a real radio, and it's... It's, it's a pretend radio. It's an impersonation of a radio. It is a virtual radio. And in that sense, all of the monies that we have that are quote-unquote digital are not digital. They are virtual. The Fed, all fiat money, everything that we transfer digitally, they only exist because of the authority of the institution that has the quote-unquote right to move it around. Your bank simply has the authority from the Fed and from the government to be the one that says you have the money. But you don't actually own money. Tokens are fake like any other, like Linden dollars, like V-Bucks. Like he says, the difference is in scale, not in nature. Bitcoin is actually money. It is digital money. No one, not even Satoshi, its creator, was able to make any outside of the rules of Bitcoin. Everyone, since its initial establishment, has played by the same rules of Bitcoin. Bitcoin was ushered into existence. It was invented, but it is its own thing. No one controls it. Satoshi can't come back and change it. Nobody else can either. I'm running the entirety of Bitcoin on my home computer, which I know to anybody who's new to this space probably doesn't understand what that means. But 
It's an insanely redundant system that everyone is running together. It is based on consensus because everyone is securing the rules for themselves. And that creates a network where because everyone is establishing the same rules, everyone can act and work together. And there is literally a digital good, a digital money, that no one can control or change. It simply exists in the digital world. It does not fake the characteristics like the Fed, like V-Bucks. It actually has those characteristics provably. It has those characteristics in the face of adversaries well-funded, insanely well-funded and insanely powerful adversaries who directly attempt to alter those characteristics. It still has those monetary characteristics. And this was another fantastic quote from Gigi's piece. It says, quote, Bitcoin's realness does not arise out of the realness of numbers, but out of the realness of computation, which is to say out of the realness of energy. There is no way to do computation without expending energy. The physical laws of our universe forbid it. It is this limitation that is at the root of all cryptography. The tether that attaches Bitcoin to the real world is the inescapable proof of calculation and an arena of rules that require that calculation for validity that is run by every single participant. And I think there's something really interesting in the idea of the arena in Bitcoin is how the arena is established. And it's, it's something that I think Gigi had a really good analogy or just way of thinking about in his piece. Um, so uh, let's actually pause right here, uh, hit our sponsor, and then we'll jump back in on this. You guys want 5,000 sats? Because you can get 5,000 sats right now. You just go and sign up for the Fold app. You get it for free. And then you get a daily spin, and they give you free sats then too. And you can buy gift cards for major retailers and merchants and get sats back for those. You can get discounts on those cards, and you can even use Lightning. And that's all without paying for anything. But if you end up liking free sats, I suspect that you will like free sats. Let's say you want to keep doing this. Let's say you want to kick it into overdrive. You get the Fold Premium Debit Card. It is just 10 bucks a month, and... For reference, I got $25 back on uh, one of my largest bills last month. Straight out, just, just the single, that one payment netted me $25, and it was like 120,000 sats. And right now, I'm getting almost just about a million sats a month. I just broke 12 million sats. I'm not sure I announced on one of the ads when I broke 11 million, and it, was, it did not feel that very long ago. At these prices, I have like $2,300 in sats that just Bitcoin savings from doing nothing but using Fold for like a year and a few months. This is literally a cheat code. It is a way to get paid sats to use fiat. I suggest you just go check it out. Just go check it out for the free sats. 
Go to guyswan.com slash fold. That is my name, Guy Swan, with two N's, dot com slash fold. Download the app, get you 5,000 sats, check it out. See if you like it. See if you like it like I do. I use it. I don't use anything else. Guyswan.com slash fold. Right in the show notes. All right, let's get back into this. So again, there was, there was something in the way Gigi conceptualized the two ultimate problems or the two elements of money, particularly digital uh, in the digital world, or well, you know, in the physical world as well, is the object itself and the arena. And that either one of these were ultimately, essentially if either one of these was corruptible, or owned, or had a master, that this essentially made it a virtual money. It made it an impersonation of money that was easily corrupted, that was easily dominated and changed by some supposed, supposed master. That the, either the arena was completely captured, and thus, you know, what you did with the money and the nature of the money was all irrelevant, or the object itself, the monetary unit, was captured, and same story from a different direction. Here's the thing about Bitcoin when we think about it as digital money, is that anyone, actually he has a quote here, says, in Bitcoin, anyone can create both the objects and the arena. Anyone can mine and anyone can run a node. So this is an analogy that I think does such a great job at framing why nodes matter and why the only miners matter narrative is totally ignorant. And, and we saw this, we witnessed this in Bitcoin's history. We saw the outcome of the block size war. We talked about, we, we discussed and in depth dug into the idea of the game theory between nodes and miners, and then we practiced it, we tested it in the real world with real value, with the real Bitcoin network and consensus rules at stake, and the nodes won. Holding the line prevented Bitcoin from being changed. And why was that? Because the nodes define the arena. Miners create the objects. Miners extend the chain the nodes define what chain is to be extended. And I, I said, said this a lot, and I feel like this is such a good way to frame something I've tr I felt like I've tried to explain a bunch of different ways, but that in the digital world, all the code can be arbitrarily changed. You know, everything about Bitcoin is editable. I can edit anything and everything about Bitcoin. I can edit all of my all of my addresses to, you know, put a billion Bitcoin in them. I can do whatever I want because it's on my computer. But the thing is, is that because all of the other nodes, because everyone else is validating for themselves according to an explicit set of rules, if I alter, if I violate those rules in the code that I change on my own computer, I'm simply not participating in Bitcoin anymore. Everyone else just outright rejects me. They, they just invalidate everything that I do. They see it as an obvious false, uh, obvious falsehood. And I'm literally evicted from the network. 
I am no longer part of the arena because I do not, I'm not establishing these same rules. And the only reason, this is something that's so, so difficult to get this into people's heads, I think, because it is a strange concept. But specifically, though, when in the arguments with, you know, big blockers or whatever who would claim that miners are the only ones that establish the value because they're competing with other, other and each other and they're validating everything, but that's completely missing the point. The only reason miners have to mine in the first place is because the arena dictates that those are the rules they have to play by that you have to have a valid hash with this difficulty in order to extend the chain. And if they violate that, if they attempt to change that, they will kick themselves off the network. They will have no nodes, they will have no businesses, they will have no exchanges, they will have no users who can withdraw. None of, none of it will be connected to them. They will be on a completely separate network. And the more decentralized and distributed that arena is, the more people who are participating the more solid that wall of validation is determining whether or not what the miner did is legitimate. The node is the authority that judges the miner's output. They are the customers. They are the users. They define what people sell in their stores. You know, it's like, I can't help but think this analogy always comes to mind is that Saying that miners compete with each other and that's why miners do proof of work is like saying that store owners are competing with each other over what they sell, which is why they will sell you know, clothes that customers will want, or that's why they sell specific clothing. But neither one of them are competing with the other for their business. They're competing with the business of the customer. The reason... You don't go into a store and see endless shelves of bright red jeans with sparkles on them is because customers don't buy them. It's not because other stores don't sell them. Miners are doing proof of work. Who are they working for? They are working for the arena. They're making, the store is making pants or you know, putting pants on the shelves for customers. The nodes establish the network of participants and they define the universe that requires proof of work as a, as a means of participation. It's like the rules in the video game. The best player that has all the magic swords and everything, they don't run the game, they work for the game. They had to spend 500,000 hours leveling up and hunting monsters and gaining experience and crafting potions and all of these things because the arena forced them to. That was the way, that was the action that they had to take to achieve all of those results. And the thing is, is a game can be cheated. A game often has bugs. A game often has that weird corner where, you know, just like Gigi talked about in his, uh, uh, in his article, is that you can accidentally copy and paste you can make duplicates of, uh, of an item in the game, and the arena falls apart. The game server, the game coders, the centrally controlled code of the game and the server that it runs on is the arena. In Bitcoin, the network of nodes from all over the world in every single jurisdiction on 
tens, hundreds of thousands of individual computers. That is the arena. Another great, great quote that he hit says, it's not a shared world. It is a world of consensus that arises out of agreement. Agreement about what happened in the past and what should happen in the future. Agreement via independent repetition of the same experiment and arriving at the same conclusion. Everyone is taking a recipe and executing it on the data that they have received from the network and reaching a result, a mathematical conclusion. And the thing about Bitcoin is that everyone is participating and everyone is running this experiment and we are agreeing on the ex because because we came to the exact same conclusion from the exact same recipe, we are in agreement. We have reached consensus. And in doing so, we have a system, we have a monetary unit that we can all trust independently because we're running the test of its validity on our own machines, making it a perfectly neutral money. And, you know, uh, Trent, in the five examples of Bitcoin's utility, I really like the way he opened, I mentioned this in the episode too, this one was the one we did just after Jirgigi's, uh, is he opened it, is that Bitcoin is money. You know, going back to the example of, you know, before something has a monetary premium is it develops some sort of a market for something else. You know, salt was money at one point. You know, uh, a hide, uh, you know, leather hides were basically used as a form of money. Um, cloths were used as a form of money. Uh, glass beads and, you know, uh, shells, uh, you know, yap, like large stones. Uh, gold, like precious metals, all sorts of things. There's been a huge number of monetary goods throughout history. And they've had various successes and various lifespans based on, again, the technological advancements of the time or the, the degree of delay between the creation of new supply and, you know, encountering new civilizations. But throughout all of it, this is also where Mises's regression theorem comes from, is that he saw that there was some other market for a good before it became money, before it became established as a monetary good. But here's the thing. It was totally arbitrary what that market was. It had no, there's no commonality between all of those goods and their original smaller market before they became a robust monetary good. Salt and gold... Salt's one of the oldest monies in the world. That's where the word salary actually comes from. It doesn't have any similar characteristics. Like, it's not like it's used for the same thing that gold is. If you went to a store to get gold and salt, they wouldn't be, ne they wouldn't be in the same aisles. <laughs> They're not used for the same purposes. They almost have nothing to do with each other. The only characteristics that they actually have in common are their monetary characteristics. Salt is... Uh, it's actually, it was great at preserving things. That's one of the major reasons it, uh, it became so valuable. It preserved food, and it stays consistent for a very, very long period of time. Easy to break up into small amounts or large amounts. Particularly in an ancient society, salt 
is a really good money, and so is gold. But both of their original utilities that were non-monetary couldn't have less to do, each other, do with each other. So going back to Trent's article, and why I think the way he opened it was really great, is that Bitcoin is money. It is. It doesn't matter if you disagree with why it originally got any value. And it doesn't matter what it originally got value for. And there are monies that have totally arisen just because of collectibles. It could have just been that it was neat to have a digital token that was scarce and on this new network that people could experiment with. And eventually it got a price. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's been over a trillion dollar market now. Bitcoin is money. It is a global, censorship-resistant, neutral, digital, monetary good. So now the question is, how do its monetary characteristics compare to virtual monies, like, the, like fiat nation-state currencies and Linden dollars? And I think when you frame it accurately between what these two things actually are, there isn't a comparison. There isn't one. It's like asking what the difference between a digital, a real digital radio and a virtual radio in a video game is. It's like, how could you even begin to compare them? One of them is actually a radio. The other one is an imitation of a radio. Bitcoin is the only one that has a neutral, definable object and a neutral, definable arena, and is directly tied through the reality, through the incorruptible uh, or unforgeable. Unforgeable is the, is the right word. I love uh, Nick Zabo's uh, shelling out, if you haven't heard it and or read it, uh, always, always a great one. The idea of unforgeable costliness as a critical element in the concept, in the historical context of what makes a great money and what the value of money is. Unforgeable. An unforgeable tie to reality in its provable computation. And there's another, you know, it makes me think about actually the last guy's take when I was talking about Bitcoin maximalism and why I think so many people, you know, there was, there was something that a lot of people were talking about in the context of like being Bitcoin only and being a Bitcoin maximalist and this framing that because everyone was leaving, supposedly, because people, because Bitcoin maximalists were old news and you should jump ship while you still have the chance is there was this sense that because everyone else was doing a thing, you should follow. And I made the argument that Bitcoin maximalism as an idea stands perfectly against that, is that it is, it is an idea that is held in the face of it being explicitly unpopular because I believe it to be the accurate position. And it is not because of other people saying one way or the other that I believe I am right. I'm not following someone else's lead. I see one of the principles of being a Bitcoiner as validating 
and deciding for myself. And there's a great line that, that brought that back to me in a great section from Gigi's piece. It says, quote, By running consensus software, you decide which rules are important to you. In other words, you decide what Bitcoin is, and it is you who brings it about, both philosophically and technically. There are no servers. You create your own world, and if you're lucky, your view of the world will overlap sufficiently so that you can communicate and trade with others. You are free to extend this world, both in accordance with the rules, block production, and by introducing new rules, forks. If your rule change is incompatible, your world will cease to overlap with the worlds of others, leaving you stranded on an island of one. By running consensus software, you decide which rules are important to you. In other words, you decide what Bitcoin is. This, to me, is one of those things that I value, that I, that I see as one of my principles about being a Bitcoiner, is that I have a view of Bitcoin. I have the rules. I am validating, and it is not because I am following other people. I started here when everyone thought I was an idiot. I will go back to that if I need to. I will question my premises. I will, you know, test my ideas and see if I reach the same conclusion. But if I do, I'm running a node and I'm not changing my mind. And there's another great line that Gigi had later on in this thing that says, as long as someone cares about fair, censorship-resistant money that is independent of the state, Bitcoin will exist. Even if that someone is only one person. Even if that someone is just you. And that's the bet of standing your ground in that sense is the bet that someone else understands the value of this. Realizes that this is a profound technological solution to an incredibly vast and complex problem. That this fundamentally makes our money more fair and subsequently solves the multiple second, third, and fourth stage consequences of a corruptible money. Bitcoin is the first digital money. It is not a virtual money. The question isn't, what is Bitcoin backed by? The right question to ask is, is there anything else backed by a better money than Bitcoin? All right. We'll close that one here. Um, I'm going to call it in for the night. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, we will have uh, another, maybe, maybe I'll squeeze in another episode for the weekend. Like I said, the week is not over. I can still make five. Um, uh, I will catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. Either way, um, thank you so much to the Fold Card for giving me so many sats on everything in my life. Uh, and for sponsoring this show, obviously, as well. For Swan Bitcoin, 
Um, they've been huge supporters of the show for an incredible amount of time, and they're just an awesome team with an incredible company. And then CoinKite, man, like longest running Bitcoin hardware out there and been keeping my Bitcoin safe for a long time. Thanks to these guys, I keep the lights on here and uh, get some late night recording done. Uh, thank you all so much. Do not forget to subscribe to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. Great industrial nation is now controlled by its system of credit. We are no longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men. President Woodrow Wilson, 1919. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>